Hey everyone, this is Paul Siegel, and you're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs comes to you live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, and you can catch us on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms, or youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and on this episode of Wandering DMs, we have super special guest James Malashevsky, who is the prolific author of the premier old school blog, Grognardi, of course, that, that you probably certainly know. And if you don't, he's also the creator of Dwimmer Mount, the Takumo fanzine, the excellent traveling volume, and also the sci-fi retro clone Thousand Sons and a whole lot more. James, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I got to say, you know, we are fortunate to have James because when we had you on in season two, as I mentioned right before the show, of course, that episode is one of the single most watched episodes all season long. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of anticipation anytime you get on to uh, to speak uh, some of your, your super thoughts. So we cannot thank you enough for being on. You know, the other thing I, I noticed is two weeks back when we had uh, Mr. Matt Finch on, I noticed that you were also a co-editor of the original uh, Swords and Wizardry rule game, which I wasn't aware of. Yes, that was a very, very long time ago. And I think <laughs> Matt's very, very kind to continue to give me credit for having done anything. That was, I think, the first ed- version, first printing edition, whatever you call it. That was <laughs> more than 10 years ago. But that my name is still there is uh, surprising to me. And I, mean, I thank Matt for keeping me there because it's I haven't had much to do with it in a very long time. It's, it, it, it was put on a good. It was put on a solid foundation. I think I, I, I can feel the Malajevsky uh, help help on the on the solid foundation that made Swords and Wizardry such a such a uh, a good and uh, you know solid over the years uh, game system. We're still talking about. Um, I guess before we get into our our chat today, I should throw out a couple of new pieces of news. Is uh, today is the I think the last day of the North Texas role-playing game convention, which is being held in person and is one of the first in-person game conventions uh, that's happening again. And I know that there are a number of Takumo games that people were running there. And I had a, I had a, um, we had one of our viewers mention on Twitter that he was really looking forward to seeing you speak, particularly about Takumo. And he was at the North Texas game convention when he wrote that and was like, it is really weird to have a bunch of people around in person, like everything's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I know a few people who have actually gone. In fact, probably I know the person who's running some of the techno games. So I heard, uh, I heard uh, Amanda D is is running a game. I don't know if that's who you're thinking of or other people. No, no, I wasn't, but I know she, she would be there because I think they live in Texas. She and Jeff uh, live in Texas. So uh, I'm not surprised if they're there, but uh, no, that was, wasn't who I was thinking of, but that, that could well be who, who this person was playing with. That's, that's awesome. A whole bunch of Tecumel games. I am, I am both excited and terrified that conventions are starting again. That's all right. I'm, I'm terrified and excited <laughs> myself. <laughs> awesome, awesome. What you know? One other thing I'll point out is is uh, we mentioned the excellent traveling volume, which is a Tecumel fanzine, and you just released a new uh, issue that I just found out about, like about a week ago, as a matter of fact. So issue thirteen yes. is available on Drive Through RPG right now. 
Yes, the PDF is available through drive-thru, but the print is through Lulu. Um, I used to do all of the printing myself and send them out, but unfortunately, things have happened over the last 15 months that have made um, printing and uh, uh, going to the post office and just generally it's it's been a real hassle which is unfortunate because i used to enjoy the whole process of printing and stuffing the envelopes mm-hmm. in hand it, it that was that was one of the reasons why i did it in the first place i wanted to have that kind of um experience of zines uh the way they used to be because I, I really didn't have any of it myself when i was younger i wasn't into the the zine scene and uh, i wanted to kind of recreate that as best i could but it's just been a it's been a bit of a hassle over the last year and a half unfortunately and uh so i offloaded some of it to lulu and it seems to be working it's uh we'll see how it goes great 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 of course on screen right at the moment we we don't have the current cover i didn't i just found that out last night so i think it's the cover of number seven that we have Mm -hmm. on screen at the moment and it's number 13 that just got released so, of course, we wanted to get you on today to talk about, you know, the possibilities of using science fiction in fantasy cam- ga- campaigns. And, of course, uh, Tecumel, which I'm probably not pronouncing right, is like a really great example of that. And, you know, some of us know that from the publication Empire of the Petal Throne by M.A.R. Barker. And uh, as, as Jane mentioned, he's been running a, a, a nonstop campaign for six years in that world. Um Maybe just pitch like what what is like that's a longer campaign than I've ever run actually. So what is it about Takumo that makes for a long running campaign? Because I think some of us think about like sci-fi elements as like throwaway spice that's gonna sh- that's maybe gonna show up once or twice. Why has that been such a such a fruitful long long running campaign for you? Gee, um, well, I would say, first of all, I've just been lucky to have really good players. I mean, that's that's the simple truth. I mean, they've become very engaged with one another and with the the sessions. It just it. it I wish I had a, a secret to share as to why it has lasted. Well, actually, no, I do have one. Uh, it just keep doing it. Really, every week we play, even though, as I told you previously, you know, five minutes before we get together, I feel like. I should cancel it and not do it because I get horrible stage fright. But just keep doing it. And that really has been the, the true secret to it. But to the bigger question of what makes TechML so engaging, it's it's a very wide and uh, broad, I suppose, and deep kind of a setting. You can play it at a very basic level of just being a, a dungeon crawl like D&D because it has built into the setting this idea of these underworlds beneath the major inhabited cities of the setting that go back untold thousands of years. And so it, you can run it as a, like a mega dungeon sort of crawl if you want to, and that's fun. But all of the setting itself is filled with these very complex and Byzantine cultures that you can interact with. So if you want to get involved in politics or just sort of general social kinds of things, the world is also big and there's things that people don't know. So there's exploration. You can do all the things you would typically do in a, in a, um, a fantasy RPG. But I think to bring it back to our, our purpose today, uh, the science fictional elements are... Um, what kind of set it apart? Well, one of several things that set it apart, because Tecumel is um, what I call secret science fiction, 
it is a uh, a setting that appears on the surface to be fantasy because there's there's magic, there's this sort of ancient medieval technology. Uh, the social structures are archaic. Uh, there are gods and uh, demons and things of that sort. But it's all on a science fictional basis, right? So the magic has a a rational basis to it. Though no one or very few people in the setting actually understand that. So as the players, uh, through their characters, continue to explore and interact with it, they become to realize there's more here. And I think that's part of what pulls people in. That's a big part of it anyway. There's this mystery of what's happening in the setting and, and how things got to be the way they are. So I'm, I'm, I'm super curious about this, James. I, I've, I've, I have no uh, basis in Tecumel. I've never played it, never read it, um, and and frankly, haven't done a lot myself of intermixing fantasy and sci-fi. So so I'll be I'll be asking the dummy questions here. Um, so uh, I'm I'm really curious. I have run uh, the one thing that comes to my mind when you talk about the, like secret science fiction. I have run some Deadlands. Which anybody who's who's read the Deadlands books knows that that it's kind of this interesting historical slash supernatural setting, but in the end there's a surprise reveal at some point about what's causing all this. So I'm kind of curious, like especially from the your perspective of having run the game with your players, like do they know coming in that this is a sci-fi fantasy blend? Is it a surprise to them to to discover it partway through? And at what point in the six year span did they discover it? If so. I had the same question. This is my burning question yeah. as well. And I also haven't used very much sci-fi, so I will also be asking the dummy questions, but that was my top one. So thank you, Paul, for awesome. asking that. There you go. That's my big question. Let's... Okay, so let's see. Um, my group of players was a, is a big mix. Was a mix. There were some people who knew Tecumel beforehand, so they were familiar with uh, the background. Uh, some of them were passingly familiar with this, like, oh, it's that kind of weird fantasy game I've always wanted to try. And then some were complete novices who knew nothing about it at all. They might have been familiar with the name, but they didn't know any of the details. Uh, so it was a big mix. Um, it is... It didn't make a difference, particularly the fact that that some people knew the the sort of deep history and background of the setting compared to anyone else, because... As I say, there's so much to play with in the setting. I don't want to make the the, the sci-fi elements are there, but they're not the primary uh, mm-hmm. point of interest. I mean, you could make them so if that's what you're interested in. But um, when it was that they finally knew, well, hmm. As players, I think the ones that were unfamiliar with the setting started to learn things at various points throughout the campaign. They'll they'll come across things uh, that made them start to think, "Hmm, there's something strange here. This is not what I imagined it to be." Uh, the characters themselves still don't have any real sense of that because they have no context for being able to say they know. In the setting, there's often talk about you know the ancients, the, the great ancients, they were able to do these wondrous things, but it's always phrased or couched in, in very um, fantastical sort of terms. Uh, you know, it's when they walked with the gods and uh, they had these great powers and so forth. But it, it's such a non-scientific setting that there's really, there's almost no basis for, for any of the characters to ever realize these things. But I can tell you one of the moments when it really hit home with the car- with the players, I should say, um, was the um, the characters were involved in this long and complicated sort of story that is not important. But what wound up happening is that they were seeking out this uh, this weapon that had been used uh, by a god at some point called the Sword of Aenal. And 
they had heard that after it had been used in this, this fashion that was that saved all sorts of people, they needed to get it for themselves. And that this follower, this uh, this warrior who had worked, who had you know, fought side by side with this god when he was on Tecumel, um he had this, and he took it off and found it a city. So they decided, well, we'll just go over and we'll look for it, because it supposedly still exists. We need it. And they did. And after a long time, they realized the sword of Aenal was actually a um, planetary defense emplacement. Uh, it was this giant laser gun that was tied into a satellite system that was still uh, in orbit around Tecmel, and they wanted to find a way to operate it. And they that's led to all sorts of uh, amusing things they're still dealing with the consequences of. But they were they were it was funny because the players knew many of them hmm. that there was this science fictional element but when they got there and they they spoke to the leaders of the city and they said we're on this quest to find this they said, oh of course we can show you where it is it's kept here and then they saw it and there was just this building with this big gun on top of it. <laughs> and they the players i it's one of those moments that i'm sure everyone as a referee at some point has had where you're you're kind of proud of yourself because you you managed to pull a fast one on the players in plain sight. They should have seen it. They should have realized what was happening, and they're still impressed by it nonetheless. So I was I was a pr- I was proud of myself, and that awesome. was a case where the sci-fi elements came very clear. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I th- I feel like it's it's always interesting to me when when content has that like a secret like that, and then it's been out for a long time, and you're always wondering like, well, which players are going to know the secret, and which ones are going to be genuinely surprised? And I feel like our nature is to like err on the side of like wanting the players to be surprised. But I, I think the, the, the surprising fact is most players love to role play uh, to pretend that they don't understand the thing that they in fact do understand. Absolutely. I Absolutely. think I, players, I, and I, I can relate that to a, a horror game I ran once that was set in 19, in the early 1980s where the players were investigating some students who disappeared into the steam tunnels playing this weird new game called Dungeons and Dragons. And so they're all role-playing characters from the 80s who don't understand Dungeons and Dragons. And of course, everyone playing the game really understands Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and they adored it. They absolutely loved pretending that they had no idea what this Dungeons and Dragons thing was. Yes, yes. So, yeah, I, I could totally see players just, just diving into that and being like, what is this strange thing on top of the building? That's great. That's great. So with Tecumel, so part of your experience, James, is that you've had... It, like Paul's saying right now, is that's a, obviously a published setting where at least some of your players are aware of it in advance. If you and and I asked the following because I feel like this is a thing that I misstep on a lot. If you sure. rolled out, and I know you're working on a new campaign at the moment, and we're I'm personally really interested in hearing about that after you emailed me about a, a while back. If you're rolling out a brand new campaign and you had full control over the reveal revealing when they were sci-fi elements how soon should you do that should you get buy-in from players like before you even get started or should that happen in the first month or would you want to hold off for like a year before haha there's also some sci-fi in here. <laughs> i um hmm, i'm gonna punt that one a bit and say i i don't usually have a plan about these things i'm a very lazy referee i don't plan things out more than about 15 minutes into the future so it really, it depends. I have no idea. I mean, in the case of my uh, Techmill campaign, I think it took, it was some time before it came up uh, in the game at all. Um, and when it did, it was primarily through um, uh, magic items. 
because a lot of the magical devices, I see I even call them devices already, magic items in the game are actually technological devices. Mm -hmm. And so when they encounter them, and they're widely known in the setting, there are these little things called eyes. They're these tiny little orb-like things that you hold and you press a little button in the back and they do something. Um, They're a bit like uh, wands, I guess, in D&D or something, Um, but they do a variety of different effects. Some of them are weapons and some of them are not. They're well, people know about them. And they were just ancient tools that were used, technological devices. Um, So I think that was probably when it first started, when they got a hold of one and they felt really impressed um, with themselves because they had actually managed to to find one. but that took a while before that happened. Um, but I could see, on the other hand, it's starting early. It really, it. it I don't think there's a, a single answer, unfortunately. I don't know if that's satisfying or not. It's honest. It's honest. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing I should point out is we we also in the live chat at the moment we have one of uh, James' uh, players, actually Stephen Wendell, um, and Paul. I don't know if you can get up his comment about when he felt yep. he knew. Yeah, he says here. I think it was the first tube car station that made it clear it was a technology-based magic. Okay, well then if that's the case, then that was quite a while. Yeah, there (laughs) are these, um, like a a planetary kind of subway system called the the tube cars, and they sort of travel about, which is a great Again, it's a wonderful uh, device in the game because uh, since the people who live on Tecumel, for the most part, don't know how these things operate, if you get in one of them, you can wind up almost anywhere. So it gives you an opportunity to sort of travel around and see more of the setting than you would otherwise be mm-hmm. able to. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a great advice ad, ad, a device for adventures. Cool. I should point out that Stephen is one of our yeah, he's one of the the best patrons that Wandering DMs have, and so obviously as a player in James' campaign and uh, viewer and patron of Wandering DMs, he has excellent taste. And we encourage anybody <laughs> watching today to follow Stephen's <laughs> follow Stephen's path because <laughs> obviously he has exquisite taste. That's you know, on the issue it. of um, on the issue of uh, how how soon do you reveal that? You know, two things came to mind this morning is I recently read a book on screenwriting where part of the advice on that is to, like in the first scene or two, say out loud what the theme of the series is going to be, what the the theme of the movie is going to be, but do it coyly in the mouth of like a secondhand character who's unreliable so that... Hmm. At the time, right the, at the time when the viewers first see that, they don't actually believe it and think that it's garbage. And then later on, ha- when they think back to it, go, "Oh, geez, they actually did tell us that in the first scene, and I wasn't mm-hmm. smart enough to pick up on it right then." Um, and I thought that was pretty clever. Now, the, the other thing is, we had our, our friend um, Doug Vahovic of Nerdarchy uh, wrote a, a blog, I think, last year that was saying if your campaign's going to be about mind flares make it about mind flayers in the very first episode. And I think that part of his thinking was for a lot of us, like, again, I haven't had a six-year campaign in my life. A lot of us, our plans for campaigns, maybe they get snipped off earlier than we expect, or we don't pull the trigger until the campaign's almost about to wrap up. And I think that's certainly a problem that I've had. So so at least Doug's advice was do it sooner rather than later to make sure you actually get the theme in the game at all. I, I can see that. What I was going to say uh, is, in the case of what I've been doing with Tecumel and Tecumel in general, um, that it is secretly science fiction is not the point of right. the setting, right? Okay. It's just okay. it's a it's a, okay. it's a 
piece of background information that I found very helpful in 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 thinking about what the setting is like and what the mysteries are and where the player characters might go and what they might encounter. But I've never really got hung up about the fact that it was a science fiction setting. I mean, because to the people who live in it, it's not particularly. They don't, as I say, they don't have any frame of reference for being able to right. do that science as we understand it as a sort of a, a method of, a, of of reaching certain conclusions or, or or putting forward certain hypotheses. They they have that's just not the way their world works because you have this magic, for example, which makes it a lot. Um, there's not much reason to sort of explore things in an empirical scientific way uh, because magic is understood well and it produces a lot of the same effects with much less difficulty fascinating yeah you know that's I, the thing that i would overlook i would overlook that take on it I, I think it's pretty interesting that it's not the point right it's like something that's interesting about the setting but it's not like like we were watching lost and there's some like this is the mystery to be revealed that everyone's gonna go ah right and then then now the campaign's over because we figured it out um i think that's really Although nice I, I was going to say there's a yeah. funny story about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, because um, for a lot of um, for those who don't know, uh, forgive me, but Tecmel, the reason that it is the way that it is, is that it was originally it's in the very far future from the present day, uh, and the planet Tecmel was dropped into this pocket dimension where there are no stars, and it's in its own little reality, which is one of the reasons why magic works the way that it does. And for many people, exactly how and why this happened is a big deal. Um, they obsess over it. A lot of fans of Tecumel obsess over it. And um, I was told a story once that one, uh, Professor Barker, when he used to um, uh, run the Tecumel campaigns, there were two of them. And one group of them was made up of people uh, from the University of Minnesota Wargaming Club or the Conflict Simulations Association, as they were known. Uh, and they were, they were war gamers. So they were keen to win, you know, to win. That's what yeah. they were interested in doing. So they really sucked the marrow right out of the bones of Tecumel and every little bit of thing they could find to just to figure out what was going on and then use it to their character's advantage. And at one point, they had been catching... And of course, Professor Barker himself was keen to share all of this background. Like, he was happy when people took an interest in it, right? So, understandably so. Um, and eventually, they sort of figured things out, and they were able to um, piece together all the details to the point where they could restore Tecumel to normal reality. So, the cool. other group of players came and uh, and came over to Professor Barker's house and for their usual weekly Tecumel session. And he said, oh, there's 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 no game. What do you mean there's no game? It, it's done. Tecumel's done. It's done. I said, what? And, said, and they explained the story of how it's over. It's done. They beat it. That's it. And fortunately, oh. the, the, the players, fortunately, the players in the other group, they sort of talked him off the ledge and made him realize that, well, you know, it could still keep going. And that was when he introduced this concept. And this is, again, speaking of science fictional, the idea that there are alternate versions of Tecumel. There are mm. different realities. Uh, and this is something that started to come up in my own campaign, actually, as well, where there are different versions uh, of it. And it was just, okay, well, that version of Tecumel is gone, but the one we're playing is still around. 
and it's become an important part of the setting this this idea where there are decision points in history and then things split off and form these branches of a tree of reality is sort of the metaphor that's used in the setting yeah it's neat and i've had a lot of fun lately doing that in my campaign in mm -hmm. fact the players had spent the characters had spent some time traveling between uh, alternate techamels and they just got back to their own after having gone elsewhere it's very it's a it's as I say, it's it's a very broad and rich setting. It's got lots of uh, little things like that to play with. But the point is not to explore alternate reality. It's just that that's a a, a portion of the the, the, the the overall picture. It feels like when uh, Conan Doyle uh, killed off Sherlock Holmes, and then by popular demand was forced to bring him back. <laughs> um, feels of a similar cloth. Yeah. The difference being, I think Conan Doyle didn't want to keep writing Sherlock stories for the rest of his <laughs> right. life, whereas Professor Barker did want to continue playing Tacomel. It's just that he, had, <laughs> he felt he had been outsmarted by his own players, which yeah. at once he was happy about, but also sad. Because yeah. as, a, as a referee, I don't know how you feel about this, but when my players figure something out and beat me at my own game, even though it's annoying, you have to smile because it's sort of like, they've been paying attention. Like, yeah. these guys are good. Yeah, I, I absolutely uh, delight in that. Yeah. Honestly, that's that's because it, it's so often the other way around, where you're like, "How did I? I've put every clue I could think of in front of them, and they still don't get it." <laughs> I'm just gonna have to tell them, I guess. <laughs> I, I very much come. I very much come to embrace the role of DM as uh, wrestling heel, um, and uh, I think I. I think I saw someone on social media because, you know, some people, you know, occasionally there's a criticism of like DMs are egomaniacal and they're power crazy and all that kind of thing. And I saw someone on social media, I think a week ago, put, put it very well, said, no, no, no. The whole role of the DM is to get dunked on incessantly by your players. That's why you're there. <laughs> yes, true. It's true. It's true. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you're true. the uh, you're the senators to the players uh, Harlem Globetrotters is the, uh, <laughs> oh, is the idea. You know, um, on this idea of uh, go ahead, Paul. Oh, I was I was going to twist this in another direction. I was I was curious if we should start investigating like the history of how how we got to the point of. Uh, I think it's very interesting, and, and I, my brain always goes to um, the way fiction used to be organized at the bookstore, right? Like, in the yes. in the 70s and, and early 80s, I don't recall there being a separate fantasy section to the bookstore. It was all just science fiction, right? And and I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Barker was doing running these games in the 70s, is that right? Like, late 70s? Yes, yes. Yeah, they started... Um the empire the first technical campaign began within just a few months of D&D's being released actually yeah so yeah. it's uh it's very old one of the oldest rpg campaigns outside of like blackmore and greyhawk yeah so it's interesting it was, to me was, that that at some point literature sorry paul He'd written literature prior to that and then applied the Indian to run games with it is that is that right well no no not quite right uh he oh. uh he'd been creating Tecmel for a long time uh, since he was a child, basically. He, this was sort of a world that he had come up with uh, out of his love of languages, partially. Uh, he, okay, you know what? I should say, go back and, and correct myself. You're not completely wrong. He's never published anything. He did write stories of his own in sort of proto Tecmel that we've only just begun to find now, now that his archives, mm -hmm. you know, his, his papers are going through from the Tecmel Foundation has them. So we've seen some of those things, but he didn't publish anything formally, uh, like fiction in set in Tecmel until, um, I forget when the first one came, early 80s, I think it was. I can't recall now. Interesting. 
And Paul, what was your question? Um, I, w I was just going to continue to expound on that point of like, like, at, you know, in those in those early formative days, I feel like there was, you know, there wasn't a distinction between sci-fi and fantasy. So like having sci-fi elements in your fantasy campaign was just, I don't know, just part of the greater genre of what you're exploring. And at some point they bifurcated to the point where now people are surprised. Like, oh, you're mixing sci-fi and fantasy. How fascinating. So I'm kind of curious. I don't know if there's any way for us to know, or if you know, James, but that like how you know what was Barker's approach here? Was that just normal that that there was, that he would co-mix those two elements? Or yes, I, I think in his case it was definitely just a normal thing. Uh, you're right that it wasn't until sometime I I would think it was probably sometime in the 70s or it could have been in the 80s when they started to have separate sections in bookstores. And I suspect it was probably done mostly for marketing purposes, just right. for you know being able to separate them. One of the things I always talk about is how um, uh, Fritz Leiber's story, which one is it? Ilmet and Lankmar, I think it is, uh, mm -hmm. won uh, either a Hugo or a Nebula for, uh, uh. Uh, right, uh, in the early 70s, uh, for short, for novella or whatever it, category it was. But the point being is that's a, now we look at that as a solidly fantasy story, but then we mm -hmm. think of the Hugos and Nebulas as often being more sci-fi, and the reality is the distinction between them is, is largely artificial. So if you go back, for example, to like Burroughs with the John Carter stories, which is kind of really the beginning of all of this i mean gary gygax talks about barsoom all the time in the original yeah. D, D books right it's it's mentioned constantly john carter even more so than say conan is like the quintessential D, &D adventurer and yet it's set on mars right it's an, it's another planet um so what is that? Is it fantasy or science fiction? And of course, John Carter gets there by some kind of astral projection or whatever it is. But on the planet, they have this technology, these radium pistols and, you know, atmosphere processing plants and all this. So the mixture has been there pretty much from the beginning. So Barker, I think, you know, he's, he's coming out of that tradition. I mean, he was involved in uh, science fiction fandom from a very, very uh, early point, um, you know, in the 40s. Uh, he attended, like, one of the, the earliest world cons. Uh, there's even a picture, um, you may have seen it somewhere, of him cosplaying uh, a character from Tecumel, or a proto-Tecumel. He made a costume, and he went to the, you know, the Masquerade Ball in, like, 1947 or whatever year it was. Um, and that was, that's just the way things were. I mean, people didn't wow. make a strong distinction. It was, I think, I've often heard it said that it was uh, Hugo Gernsback who was the one who was trying to put science fiction on a very solidly sciencey basis, and he rejected all of this other, the, all these other things as being too light and soft and not really appropriate. You know, he had the idea of you know men with slide rules who are going to make the world a better place, mm -hmm. uh, and the rest of it. You know, I'm not interested in in you know these people going off to other planets and and wooing alien princesses and so forth. So. It took a long time for it to finally finally happen, but but Barker, as I say, he he's very much in that kind of earlier tradition um, of a sword and planet, which is was well, that science fiction or is that fantasy? Well, why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't it be both? Hmm. You know, I should I should tip the hat to our viewer John Miller, who like a couple minutes before we even started talking about this, correctly anticipated that we were going to have to talk about John Carter. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, John asked a couple minutes ago, was 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 Tecumel inspired? Was Tecumel specifically inspired by John Carter, or, or was it other popes that Barker was looking at? Was was that a whole whole combo? It was definitely a, it was definitely an influence. I mean, he mentions it at the beginning of Empire of the Petal Throne. Uh, he talks about the uh, the things that were influential on him, and he mentions Barsoom. He also mentions Robert E. Howard. He mentions Conan as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are both uh, important. And Barker himself. Um, corresponded with all sorts of early uh, sci-fi people like Jack Vance, for example. So Dying Earth has an influence on, and again, Dying Earth, I mean, it's it's the far future and there are technological elements to it, but there's also uh, magical yeah. ones. And yeah. it's sort of what, what is the Dying Earth, right? And again, why do you have to choose? And j- just in case there's some really new viewer to the show, of course, Vancean magic system was, was what was excerpted by Gygax to really found found the D&D magic system as a, as a, the, with the with the original memorization and that's the limitation that wizards have and things like that and at least for many years we used to re- recall we used to refer to the magic system in D&D as the Vancian magic system um, so that was incredibly important right there and it came out of as James just said really a a, a far future setting hmm. I, f- uh, I that's feel a really like good point actually it, it seems to me like there are two kind of different approaches now to to mingling fantasy and science fiction which which uh really triggers for me a, a reminder of uh actually a, an interview i saw once with mel brooks who was describing the difference between his style and that of gene wilder and he said you know gene likes to be really in the fiction and 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 not acknowledge the audience at all whereas i like to wink at the audience mm. um and i feel like you know we, we see that here in terms of like some settings where science fiction and fantasy are just commingled because that's just the way it is and like that's just the reality of the world that I'm in, but there are definitely other cases I feel like where the introduction of the sci-fi elements are kind of the author winking at the audience, at the players, to, as if to say, like we all know what this is, but isn't it funny that the characters don't? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure exactly when that started to get introduced, but most of the things that I'm thinking of that I have basis in are more in that realm of of that kind of wink at the audience. I mean, I feel that when when this conversation comes up, like I can see, you know, it doesn't work for everything, but at least a couple of Howard's Conan stories, I feel, have that. So there are times when Conan's fighting a wizard and the wizard pulls out a golden orb and does something with the orb and pitches it at Conan and then it blows up in a fireball. Mm -hmm. Or um, I think it's the story Black Colossus where a, um, the two armies are about to meet and the wizard's chariot comes running across the middle of the battlefield and he's pouring out some kind of chemical product out of an urn that then blows up into a wall of fire. And I feel like at least a couple times when I'm reading even Howard, you could have read it as really some kind of early alchemist that's being interpreted as a wizard. So I feel like even in a really early stage, that stuff mm. was out there. Interesting. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, you have, um, I mean, there's one I always talk about is Tower of the Elephant, where uh, Yagasha is an alien. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a being from another world. Right. Now, again, what does that mean? What is another world? Is it another plate, another realm of existence or is he from pluto or something we don't know exactly but he's portrayed as not being native to this earth and uh he's 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 an alien being an extraterrestrial effectively so yeah it's definitely there it's in all those things and like lovecraft even though it's set in the modern day and so you wouldn't call it fantastical uh nonetheless the cthulhu mythos is filled with things that are effectively like very advanced science but to primitive people 
that is us, they would appear to be magic. But, you know, Cthulhu and his his cohorts are really, they're extraterrestrial beings of immense power and, and knowledge, so they're able to achieve effects that we don't understand. And to us, they just appear to be magical. You know, it's really funny you mention that because when I, I mean, when I dig into, like, the Appendix N list, like, I, my thesis is that ultimately Lovecraft's the root. And he's about the earliest one in that list, and he had so many connections to the other important pulp writers. And for many, many years as a young person, I stayed away from Lovecraft because I don't do horror at the time. I said, too much for me. I don't kind of do that kind of thing. And then at some point, and I was terrified by the Errol Otis art and things like that. Um, and at some <laughs> point, I picked it up, and I finally started reading Lovecraft. And I was like, this isn't horror at all. It's just science fiction. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I know. I think that's a, it's a it's a good thesis. And I think Lovecraft himself. If you look at the trajectory of his career, his later um, stories were definitely more in a science fiction vein, like uh, uh, at the Mountains of Madness, where you see about the creation of life on Earth by the Elder Things, and uh, likewise the. Um, shadow out of time with the great race and their ability their mental time travel abilities and so forth yeah they're definitely becoming more and more uh, science fictional and and your 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 idea too that he's sort of the root of it i think it's a that's a good one that's you should you should do a, a post you should do something about this because that's a, it's a really good idea and it's 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 yeah, I mean, I think you're really onto something because you can play lots of degrees of separation because of Lovecraft. He's sort of at the at the, the root of it. He connect. I mean, Fritz Leiber, for example, was a correspondent of his, and and Lovecraft offered his advice on the early um, Fafnir the Great Mouser story, the very first right. one, and told him, "Don't set it in history. Make it a fantastical world." And there you go. I mean, yeah, it's really neat. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I, of course, when I when I was talking about like the the, the wink at the at the audience, I was thinking of of things like um, uh, the Elspreg to Camp series, the Goblin Tower, where at one point I think Jorian escapes to a, another dimension through some magical device, and it's very obviously a modern highway that he's along, and he's like there, <laughs> there are cars, and it's like, it's of course described from his perspective, but it's clearly like a joke to the reader of like, haha, we all know that this is just a highway. But it's freaking him out. Um, I think I feel like Pratchett used that once as well in one of his stories, where somebody is teleported into like a modern uh, uh, airplane, and it's like, what's going on, right? <laughs> and of course, again, it's you know, we know you, you and I, reader, know what's going on. Um, do, you, do you find yourself, James, ever using that kind of humor in your in your games, or is it a more serious tone in Tecumel? I don't intentionally. Well, Tecumel is definitely more serious in it, but. Yeah. Any role-playing game session has m moments of, of humor in it. I don't see how they couldn't. And there are plenty of times when the players, um, who are who definitely have better sense of humor than I do, they will come up and make suggestions about things to to play with the various aspects of the setting. And it's fun. You know, we, we, yeah. en we enjoy that kind of a thing. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not intentional or something okay. that's planned out in advance. Maybe maybe this is just a commentary on my style because I feel like that I would lean well, hard. I would lean hard into that myself. <laughs> oh sure. Well, no, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, when you when you were talking about that, I was trying yeah. to think of examples of it, and the one that came to my mind actually is a bit earlier is uh, the movie Wizards by Ralph Bakshi, mm -hmm. right. um, which yep. 
it's serious, but it also has plots of winking at the camera about things in terms of uh, technology and its place and what things are being used in a what is now effectively a magical setting. So it's uh, it's got a I mean it's it's um it's got a uh, it's what's the word I'm looking for here it it has it's a my brain is failing me. Forgive me. <laughs> it's right. it, has, it has a storied history in yeah, in, yeah. The, in in of literature. So, yeah. Wizards is a trick. It really that, that, that is. If somebody has that's a good that, word for it. That's a good word yeah. for it. <laughs> now, I, before we get too far off, I should go, go ahead. Paul. No, no, no. Go. I was just gonna talk about wizards more. Go on. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so before. Okay. So this is great. We come back to wizards, but yeah, before yeah. we get too far off, I should point out that in, in classic D and I mean, you know, so technically, a couple months before Barker started playing with it. Uh, the very first published books in 1974 had a bunch of sci-fi options all mixed through it. And we were talking about John Carter and the Wilderness Encounter Tables. In original right. D&D have specific tables for what's obviously John Carter stuff. And they have the colored Martians and they have Tharks and they have white apes and they have multiple tables for you know, arid desert is what it is, or, you know, something crazy mountains or something like that. And the whole list is just all a whole bunch of stuff from John Carter of Mars. And it doesn't come, it doesn't actually give you any stats, but that wasn't uncommon for the time, is it was presumed that the DM could just make up statistics for all these things on the fly. And it's entire, there's, and there's nothing else like it. It's not like there's, uh, you know, Conan encounters in the book. And it's not like there's, uh, Elric encounters in the book is just like, you know, medieval stuff, and then it's John Carter stuff in the wilderness encounters, which which I always think of the, the 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 monsters list. Like the very last thing, it says, oh, you could also have robots and androids and golems, no problem. You're going to make it up yourself, but whatever. And um, even I think in the very first volume, I think page five, when Gygax is explaining what the whole game is about, he says the campaign can stretch from prehistoric to the imagined future, but that's not recommended until the medieval aspect is thoroughly explored. And and maybe my problem is I haven't entirely explored the medieval aspect, and that's why I haven't I haven't gotten a chance to dig into the far future aspects yet. Um, but I'm still working on that. I feel like I should be there pretty soon. <laughs> Very soon, I think. Yeah, you're you're right to bring up all those things and this is my own little drum to beat all the time, but Barsoom is really important. Mars and Burroughs is significant. Uh, have you did? Did I misremember? Did you have Ernie Gygax on previously? We did. No? We did. Yes, you did. Have you had Ernie Gygax? Yeah. Well, because yeah. he quite famously his character got transported to Barsoom uh, by Gary in uh, the Greyhawk campaign, and uh, that's. I mean, it was literally Burroughs Mars. It was not just an imagined other planet, but it, it had all of those elements. So it's something that actually came up in the Greyhawk campaign. It's not It's not purely theoretical or just some kind of, you know, you could do this kind of thing. It was something that he actually did. I mean, he was quite interested in that. Great point. Great point. You know, and I'm also thinking about, I was reminded that um, uh, Rob Kuntz made the machine level that got incorporated yes, into yes. Gary's Greyhawk castle, right? The whole thing was all based on technology. And I guess we would we would really be ashamed if we didn't mention Arneson's Temple of the Frog that oh, you yeah. remind me of, James, obviously, which is in the supplement two to original D&D, the Blackmore supplement. 
Um, and, um, uh, and of course, that has lasers and power armor and computers. And arguably, it's the first published D&D adventure ever. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And it's, it's, all, it's all in there right from the, from the get-go. Yeah, and then likewise in um, Eldritch Wizardry too, you get all the artifacts, and some of those artifacts are quite clearly technological devices. There's like the mighty servant of Luke O, which is some kind of a robot, for example, uh, right. among other things. Right. So it was something they were playing with, and they felt very comfortable with including it. It didn't strike anyone in the mid '70s as somehow inappropriate. Um, and as I say, it's it's. I think it's something that happened later, that somewhere along the line, someone decided that for marketing purposes, it was better to separate the two. And our frame of reference has now been entirely um, governed by that. But I mean, mm-hmm. so many stories that we consider to be fantasy, like Terry Brooks's Shannara stories, for example, they're, they're a post-apocalyptic birth, right? And there's like evil artificial intelligences and all sorts of strange things like that in those, even though there are elves and dwarves and and so forth in them. um, But they're like that. There's so many novels and novelists that they didn't care. It wasn't a concern. It was people just expected that the readers would understand and uh, not bat an eye at that. And it's only been much, much later. I mean, I originally had a hard time with it myself because even though I was closer to the, that era, you know, when I grew up, because we're all, you know, growing up in the 70s and, uh, and early 80s, but it bothered me. Like, Experts of the Barrier Peaks was a module that I hated when I first saw it. I thought it was really? just, what is this? Really? Yeah, I, really? yeah, I disliked it. I really oh did. I disliked it. It took a long time for me to appreciate it. And once I did... I love. I mean, it's great. I mean, it's had a huge, huge influence on me since. But at the time, it was it's, like, it's chocolate and peanut butter. They don't belong together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say that because I remember being super excited, and maybe you know, maybe I was just in the in the in a in a juvenile frame of mind at the time. But I remember being super excited at that cover when it showed up on shelves, and you're like, shoot monsters with a laser! Hell yes, sign me up. <laughs> Um, and of course, that has robots and aliens and computers and computer access cards and a whole bunch of stuff in there. Um, and I can see that. You know, I, I was reading this morning that uh, some number of years later they made a, a compilation volume, like TSR Wizards at the time made a compilation volume of classic adventures, and they specifically made the choice to leave that one out because the editor said, "I don't actually consider this to be a D and D adventure; it's something different." And so they had all the other contemporaneous adventures, but specifically left this one out. So apparently, it's a, it's a, it's a constant point of debate about that. Um, oh, I know. I'm sure there are. Pe- I'm sure there are people still who have have difficulties with it, and I, I can understand why they might. Right? It's. It is. Yeah. You. I guess it uh, depends on your frame of reference, right? If, if you're coming to fantasy through something like, say, The Lord of the Rings, this sort of more epic, high fantasy kind of a thing, rather than those pulps uh, that really informed early D&D, um, I can see it. Because no one wants a flying saucer landing in the Shire. Like, it doesn't, that's not, not right. It seems completely contrary. You can only imagine the harumphing that would have happened from Professor Tolkien. Um, but... If you're thinking of, you know, of Conan or Lovecraft or something like that, it's not so strange. And it's all a matter of what you're used to. So I, I can, can get it. And, and for me, my dislike of it was just, I'm unfortunately I have a tendency towards self-seriousness. So I uh, just couldn't 
I, I see, you know, the wizard with with a laser pistol, and it's just that's it's yeah. wrong to me, right? But now I accept it much more readily. It doesn't bother me nearly so much. I, I could say as a as a, uh, a slightly younger gamer, uh, I was um, uh, like probably. Um, Really getting into D and D, I suppose, starting with or seriously with with second edition. I definitely played some basic and first edition as a as a young kid, but really wasn't super serious about it until until second was out. Um, I don't think I was aware of that module until an, an adult, so I wasn't, and, and I certainly didn't have the OD and D stuff, so I didn't know about uh, Temple of the Frog and all that. But the first case, I really got a heavy dose of. Um, fantasy or sci-fi elements mixed into fantasy was in the back of dragon magazine in the comic snarf quest i don't know if anybody oh, remembers right. that oh, really? the, uh, oh, yeah. the book here yeah. uh and they played with that quite a lot you can see that there's a character here who's a robot um and they and they played with that theme quite a lot that he was you know really? everyone seemed to think he was a knight in armor and that was that was a joke consistently made there's a there's a bit where i think a wizard temporarily jumps dimensions into modern america and then comes back and brings back with him a revolver and so there's a consistent yes. joke about one of them having a revolver and not right. they don't understand right. it at all right they don't right. but i remember when i first saw those in the back of dragon magazine in the early 80s uh, i think the the earliest one here is is uh dated 1983 um yeah, I was taken aback. I was like, "What is this? Why are they? Wh- why are they ruining this fantasy with with these weird <laughs> elements of modern and and uh, and and futuristic stuff?" Um, you know, but it was all done for laughs, and it's just a comic. So I was like, "All right, I guess weird, but okay." Um, and I don't think I even realized that he was m- assuredly drawing on that kind of D and D content that 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 readers of Dragon were probably used to. Yeah, I'd forgot. I'd forgotten yeah. about Snarf Quest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I should point out that you know, one week ago, I had uh, I had uh, Brooklyn artist Isabel Garbani on to talk about art in the '80s, and of course, Snarf Quest is by Larry Elmore, and he was one of the top, one of the big three that we chatted about just last week. And arguably, maybe we didn't talk about that enough. Actually, we were mostly talking <laughs> about like cover work that he did for Dragonlance and things like that. And arguably, we didn't talk about Snarf Quest enough, but. Um, uh, it, it's uh, that's that's right in that that uh, 1980s era that Paul's talking about, and I also say that our our, our great uh, uh, patron Ash Adler is pointing out he, that the the split basically happened in the 80s. So the the split between the two um, genres uh, wasn't really there in the 70s, and it really was there by the 80s. So that was pretty much the exact era that that yep. that that would no longer be immediately recognized, perhaps. Great example. All right, now before we run out of time, I I got to talk about James' upcoming campaign because he yes. was emailing me a little bit, and I was very interested in it. So if we we put all these 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 great ideas together, and I think you're working on a campaign that's going to be called the Vaults of Sha'arthan. Um, mm-hmm. How are what what's your take going to be on this in your next campaign, James? Well, the idea of it is it this is sort of. Um, my Tecamel. Uh, one of the um, the difficulties I find with Tecamel, much as I love it and I do, is that it's very intimidating to people uh, because of the weird names and it's uh, non um, Western European sort of. Uh, der- it, it's it doesn't feel like regular fantasy that people are used to, and I and I that's one of the reasons it's appealing to me. Uh, but what I wanted to do was to come up with a setting that had a similar kind of exotic, weird uh, science fantasy uh, appeal to it, 
but was more accessible to people. So this is uh, something I'm working up now, hopefully to start running sometime either next month or maybe in August, depending on how far along I get. And then I will probably publish portions of it, uh, much as I've done with other things. Um, but uh, my approach right now is, again, to lean much more hard into the fantasy and keep the science fictional elements more below the surface as much as I can. Uh, a very solidly secret science fiction setting. But um, that it, it's there. I mean, that's, that's going to be the thing uh, that will ultimately be discovered by people as they begin to uh, explore it. And uh, the titular vaults of this are actually sort of a, like a, a mega dungeon kind of a thing. It's a large sort of underground complex that sort of spreads out everywhere, but what it actually is and uh, its origins are part of the sort of figure, letting people find things and sort of piece bits together. So I don't want to say too much about what's actually happening, but uh, the idea is, uh, is similar in many ways, to tech email, the specifics will be different. And I just wanted to make something, because people always come to me. They're, they're always asking, says, oh, tech email looks great. It sounds great. I hear all the art you've got commissioned for the uh, for the zine is beautiful. It makes me want to do something, but I just get put off by it because it's just, it's harder for people to get over those weird names with those strange consonants and accents everywhere. In fact, I... I fought hard with myself about should I include an accent here so that you will know that it's actually pronounced Sha Arthan, so it's in the second syllable. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you. But that's the reason. That's why I was like, well, should I have an accent? You know, a stress marker. But that puts people off. I mean, it's a silly thing, but it puts people off. And so this is an experiment. It's an attempt on my part to see if I can entice more people into taking. And taking a look at an exotic uh, fantasy setting that has this uh, science fictional element than I could through Tecamel. Boy, that seems like a great thesis because I was, I mean, one of the things I kind of wanted to ask about was specifically the, the alien language aspect of Tecamel because I'll admit that has, that has kept me at arm's length for quite some time. And oh, I yeah. think that that's you're, a you're not really, alone. You're not alone. Yeah. That's a really great thesis there. And the other thing I was going to ask about that you already answered was was whether you were planning on publishing parts of this, uh, yeah. because I know you already have some great uh, artwork uh, made for it. Maybe Paul can pull that up on screen, uh, the uh, the black and white ink uh, mm -hmm. character mm -hmm. sketches there. And I, I saw this, and you're going to have to remind me who the artist is, but I was like, that really has that super elaborate feel of Tecumel, frankly, and this makes me really interested in playing that. Yeah, the uh, these are done by the same artist who does a lot of my um, interior, and actually the, almost all of the covers of my uh, of the excellent traveling volume have been done by this artist who lives in the United Kingdom, um, and he um, uh, Dave Needham is his name. He, uh, he he does real, as you can say, really excellent artwork. It's beautiful, very evocative. And when I started coming out with this, I said to him that I wanted to do something that had. A similar flavor, uh, sort of exotic um, uh, and not traditional sort of fantasy look to it, uh, Baroque uh, and um, nice. and exotic like that. I keep using that word over and over again, but that's what I wanted, something that had that kind of flavor to it. And he came up with, it was amazing, it's like he was reading my mind, uh, but I, we've worked with one another you know, for a long time on these things. So I think he, he understands what it is I'm interested in. And, uh, but yeah, eventually I will put these out in some form or other. I'm not quite clear what, but my, 
my general feeling is to um, create by playing rather than create things in advance. So many mm-hmm. aspects of this setting uh, will probably evolve as I actually play it. And until I know exactly you know, what I've created and what I've got, it'll be hard to know for sure where it's going to go. But yeah, it'll definitely, you'll see it at some point. Let me let me reflect one of the questions showing up in our chat here from John Miller, which is what rule system are you going to be using for, for vaults? Oh, okay. So the rules are based more or less on old school essentials, which is more or less a restatement of the Moldvay and Cook uh, basic and expert sets. I, I like those a great deal and... Uh, I mean, I've always had a big fondness for, for the, the BX system. I think mm-hmm. it's a good restatement of original D&D. It's quite easy to get into. And uh, Old School Essentials is just, um, it's nice. It's, it's very well presented. I, I, I've just enjoyed it, uh, using it in other contexts. So I've, I've grown comfortable with it. But uh, some aspects of it are going to be different. The character classes are going to be distinct um, from those there won't be clerics for example uh and there will be different um racial classes yes yes uh you'll probably like you'll probably like dan you also probably like that uh the warrior the warrior class makes use of uh the the sweep attacks that as you call them Fantastic. Um, see yes this is the product that i've been looking for <laughs> yeah yeah well i was i Having played um, a lot of D and D and Empire of the Petal Throne, which is very heavily based on original D and D, warriors are kind of boring, uh, and it's not that they're a, ba- a bad class. Uh, and there are lots of little rules in the game to make them more interesting, so they can they have more options. But they're hidden and they're not made explicit. And so, for example, those cleaves or sweep attacks or whatever you want to call them, um, I think slice and dice, or I think that was something that was put up. I, I want to, uh, like, Mr. Mentors. Uh, yes, I want to make that front and center so that they yeah. know that they're capable of doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the way it will be. It's original old school's essentials with new classes and other elements of it, but it's basically BX D and D. That's great. And I will point out that the, the you know right behind Paul's head there, there's the pink and blue box, which is the ba- the basic expert set right there, which is one of our favorite uh, additions, honestly, and. Yeah. About twice a year, I have a crisis of conscience when I say I really I just base my whole game on those. Um, so we, <laughs> we we love we love that system, and we're so glad that uh, Tom Olvey, you know, had some input because he made just great decisions over and over again. Um, so that's that's a really solid foundation, I think. Um, we are we are just about out of time here, James. So I just wanted to ask if there's anything about the vaults of Shah Arthan that uh, we haven't gotten to discuss that you wanted to make sure we got out there. No, no, not yet. You did a good job. I'm glad I got a chance to mention it, but uh, talk to me again in the fall or something, and I might have more to tell you. Awesome. Awesome. We're going to hold you to that. That'll be... (laughs) Absolutely. If if you you want me to, I'll be happy. Sure. Uh, That's the best. Dan, any final thoughts on uh, sci-fi and fantasy? Once again, I feel like I'm very close to having thoroughly explored the medieval aspect of D&D. So I, so I have, as someone who has not worked much sci-fi, I think this has been very helpful to me uh, when I soon take my first step in it, particularly this idea of maintaining it as secret science fiction and uh, combined with Paul's point that you can have a, a separation between player and character knowledge and that that actually works really well a lot of the time when I tend to just default to thinking that's going to be unified knowledge. So those are really good points that I tend to have blind spots about. So I think that's really helpful to me, honestly. Awesome. Fantastic. 
Um, uh, very quickly, there was a question in the chat about what is the phone uh, in my background. I think if you if you look up our past episode on props, I think we maybe discuss it. Uh, and if not, I will uh, find an excuse to bring it up in the future. Um, <laughs> it's a good story. I love it. I was there when it was used at one point. Any uh, any of our viewers who have more examples of uh, the commingling of sci-fi and fantasy that we didn't get to discuss, uh, please uh, tell us about them in the comments of the of the video here on YouTube. We would love to hear your thoughts, uh, questions, observations. Uh, maybe we will maybe it will be a topic rich enough for us to revisit at some point in the future. And we always get such great ideas in the comments on uh, our YouTube archives, so we will really look forward to that. And if you're new to the show, remember that you can like and follow and subscribe to us, The Wandering DMs, and we're a bunch of, we're on a bunch of social media sites such as YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and GitHub. And you'll get um, uh, news about all kinds of great uh, guests that are coming up in the future and the next time that we get to have James, too. So please look for us there. If you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, you can do so. Uh, you can get those podcasts at our website at wanderingdms.com. Uh, also through various carriers such as Google Podcasts and iTunes and Spotify. If you are listening to us from one of those other sources, please take a moment to rate and review us there. Uh, that helps other users of those platforms find our show, and we really appreciate it. We really do. Uh, Got to give a great thanks to our patrons, as we do every week, for supporting the Wandering DMs and helping us get wonderful guests like James Malajewski on. And um, if you are in a position where you can join our generous sponsors, we hope that you will join us at patreon.com slash wandering DMs. And we have a couple of different tiers there and great benefits like uh, invitation to our private Discord server, where we have continuing awesome conversations all through the week, monthly behind-the-scenes videos, polls and surveys on things you want to see on the channel in the future, discounts on merchandise, and after-party chat that we hold on video with our patrons after every Sunday show. And the conversation will continue in just a couple of minutes, as a matter of fact. Um, so look for us there. Also, notes about shows that are coming up this week. Uh, Paul's 10 Dead Rats is currently on hiatus, but it will be coming back in a couple of weeks. Isabel and I should be back for more wargaming Saturday night with more Book of War, playtesty, wargamey stuff. And we're looking forward to that. And i got to say, next week, really interesting guests. We have the guys from WebDM on one week from today on June 13th, Jim and Pruitt. And they're going to be talking about a Kickstarter that they have going on right now called Weird Wastelands, which itself is based on a bunch of stuff like John Carter. And they have a wonderful cover to Weird Wastelands, and it's basically a Mars landscape and if you look really really carefully at the giant sun on it you might be able to see a teeny tiny little figure leaping across the horizon um and so it's it's really we'll continue the conversation about D, &D stuff based on john carter in one week which i couldn't be ha more happy about with the webdm awesome. guys so uh look for us there um and james thank you so much immensely for coming back and we'll hope to have you again sometime when you have some more experience uh, running your your custom campaign. Thanks. I'm glad to have been here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Don't forget, we are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, so we do hope that you'll join us again next week for the WebDM folks, uh, Jim and Pruitt, and another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then. Bye, everyone.